coal miners uh, actually was at one time a coal mine already. So it's, I guess you can call it a redevelopment of a coal mine in Crowsnest Pass. Uh, without further ado, I think I'll just uh, ask Cal to come up here so he's got lots of time to tell us about it. Would you please welcome Cal Clark. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for the warm reception and Happy New Year to you all. Um, and thanks for the great introduction, Canute. Um, happy to come and speak to you all today uh, about our Grassy Mountain project and uh, bringing coal back into the Crow's Nest Pass. Um, it's kind of an exciting time, not just for uh, us at Riversdale, but also for the pass. And, uh, and I look forward to, you know, once I'm through our presentation, enjoy a, a lovely lunch, uh, answering some of your questions and, and clarify some doubts or concerns or uh, share some of your insights uh, about the project. So having said that, um, customary before any presentation, as anybody who's worked in the resource industry uh, uh, understands these kinds of slides and it's not meant to drive you out of the room in, in, in a mass terror. Um, this is the standard disclaimer that says, you know, um, a lot of the information is accurate as best to my knowledge today, um, but uh, as with any uh, projection or forecast into the future, uh, my crystal ball is probably no better than yours. And, uh, and so we always have to put the standard disclaimer up there that uh, all bets are off once you leave the room. Um, it, 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 things can change. So. Uh, just to orient you a little bit, I know everybody's quite familiar with this part of the world and I'm sure all of you have been to the past, but uh, just to give some perspective as to where we are situated, um, we've got Lethbridge and of course we're talking about the Crow's Nest Pass uh, along Highway 3, um, sort of west and a little bit north of Lethbridge and uh, towards the BC border. As everybody knows, um, the question that we were asked to, or I was asked to come and speak about was, uh, will coal mining once again impact the Crow's Nest Pass economy? And I guess the short answer is, it always has. Uh, there's, you know, a history of coal mining that goes back more than 100 years, and it has always been there, and it has always had an impact on the local economy, even today. While Coal mining itself began sort of uh, at the turn of the last century. Uh, this is a shot from the community of Lill. Everybody's familiar. Uh, Lill was a short-lived coal, coal operation and is actually very close to, to ca uh, Grassy Mountain. Grassy Mountain is just over here. Um, but there is a strong legacy, a strong history of coal mining in the Crow's Nest Pass. And while the last active coal mine in Crow's Nest Pass shut down in the 1960s, many of the residents, not just in Crow's Nest Pass, but in the surrounding towns of uh, Pincher Creek, the MD of Pincher Creek and so on, still work in the coal sector, in the coal industry, uh, working in the Elkford Valley and tech operations. So a little bit of site history around Grassy Mountain um, and where it is and, and sort of the history. This is uh, part of the old, uh, it's not a tipple uh, because it's not a, where they tipped the coal cars from the old Green Hill mine. Uh, they actually had a really neat 
uh, if you've ever gone in here and seen it, it's kind of neat the way the cars came in and then they actually rotated the car, dumped it, and then rotated it back and out it went. It's kind of unique. But this is where the loadout was for the old Greenhill mine that ceased operations in the 1960s. It was an underground mine. Um, this is the Greenhill portion, the underground portion. Grassy Mountain is here. And this shows the existing surface mine operations that also began in the 1940s, uh, really got going in the 1950s, and then by the early 1960s, they basically walked away. Uh, quick history of, of the site, as I alluded to, the Green Hill Mine. <coughs> Sorry, I started talking. I wasn't flipping my notes here, as usual. So the Green Hill Mine uh, was an underground uh, post and pillar mine, and it operated primarily on seams one and two. Um, and over the life of the project, produced about 14 million tons is the estimate. And there are hundreds of kilometers of underground uh, shafts snaking through this area. And it's been quite challenging, as anybody who's walked around there knows, uh, you have to be careful where you're walking. Uh, these shafts are continuously shifting and collapsing and so on. So there's quite a legacy in that area and throughout the past, because uh, believe it or not, there's been more than 1,500 coal mines in Alberta. Uh, in the late 1940s, up until about 1961, uh, Western Canadian collieries operated the Grassy Mountain Project, which is the site, basically, of the proposed uh, redevelopment of the Grassy Mountain Project. Uh, over that period, they removed approximately 3.5 uh, million tons of coal, and based on the exploration activities and, uh, that we've conducted and, and legacy exploration wells, there's another 88 million tons of coal there to be uh, obtained. So it's a rather substantial resource. Just a couple of pictures, uh, in case you've never been down inside a, a, an underground mine. This is some shots from the Green Hill Mine back in the 1950s. And then this is uh, a shot from the Grassy Mountain when it was in operation back in the 1950s as an open pit mine. And this is what it looks like today. So you can see that there's still quite a legacy on the landscape uh, from the historical mining. Just another shot looking uh, more or less if you're coming north from Blairmore. Um, if this shows they basically started mining at the south, they just worked their way, followed the seam up over the top, and as they mined, uh, they just dumped on either side as they went and then trucked the coal down to the rail loadout uh, in the valley. Little bit of the site history. Uh, Scurry Rainbow acquired, acquired the uh, area initially. They were then bought up by Home Oil and then subsequently by Devon. And then the other uh, company was Consolidated Coal, uh, which became Console. Uh, they shared 50% ownership in the project until we acquired it in 2000 and, or, yeah, 2013. Uh, we acquired 100% ownership of, of the uh, area and some uh, additional surrounding properties that were held by both companies. So now get, getting back to the, the issue, so that's just sort of a big 
of an overview, a bit of history on the project, the site. Um, now we wanted to talk about, you know, this is coal. Um, we all know that it's a volatile topic and it triggers as with any resource development, uh, particularly in a, in a part of the natural world like we're in in the Crow's Nest Pass. It evokes a lot of passion in, in people. It, it gets to the heart of a lot of social values. And, uh, and it's all about really understanding the pros and cons, the trade-offs associated with the development. Do we need another coal project? Um, do we need this coal project? Do we need it here? What are the issues? What are the concerns? So by way of background, I wanted to just share with you a little bit about the pass based on some of the uh, economic analysis work that was done in support of the project by Nichols Applied Management out of uh, Edmonton. And uh, Pierce Shuchuk, who is the lead on that project, uh, or lead on that component uh, of the assessment, is an adjunct professor at the University of Alberta. And um, first to set the stage is a little bit about the municipal taxes uh, that exist currently within the Crow's Nest Pass community. Now, Crow's Nest Pass is one of uh, five designated special municipalities in Alberta. And it, among those five and among all others, it's a bit of an anomaly. Um, the Crow's Nest Pass... Yeah, so the taxes, the municipal tax rate, uh, mill rate, in the Crow's Nest Pass is one of the highest in the, in the province. Um, the taxes paid there are the highest in the province. And more importantly, more than 84% of the municipal tax base is based on residential tax return. There's very little industry to support the community. And generally speaking, once you're above 75% uh, municipal municipal tax based on residential, your community is not really sustainable. And so that is obviously creating a lot of concern. Um, despite that, there's a lot of hope in the community, there's a lot of uh, opportunity in the community, and it has a strong vision to see itself grow and diversify its economy. Um, and this just illustrates the point I'm saying that Crow's Nest Pass, when you look at the province in, in general is an outlier. Um, it is, from a tax basis, it needs something to help stimulate its economy um, because it's not sustainable right now. Added to the property taxes is sort of this vision. And of course, many people talk about a, a vision, many communities in around the world but certainly in Western Canada, have a vision of developing as a tourism destination and recreation. Very good ideas, very good vision, and we totally support that. The reality is that when this vision came out in their development plan in 2001, very little has happened since. Businesses continue to close, population is decreasing, and um, there's something needed to stimulate that, that growth. And not that the mine is going to be that stimulus, but it can help. And we can talk a little bit later on how that can happen. It's believed generally that tourism will stimulate the economy, um, that it will lead to new jobs and new opportunities. And the reality is only about 1% to 2% of the tourist dollar is spent in the Crow's Nest Pass. 
the most popular daytime destination. The Crossness Pass has very few overnight stays. Uh, most of the people that come here uh, are day trippers on en route to somewhere else, Waterton, Fernie, what have you. The most popular daytime destination is Drumheller. It gets about 15% of the tourist dollar in Alberta. And part of, the, part of the issue we have is it's a fixed pie. There's only so many people and so many dollars to spend on tourism, and every community wants to develop it. Crowsness Pass is in a situation where it's competing with many others for the same dollar, whether it's Banff, Canmore, Drumheller, Waterton, Fernie, United States, um, and other destinations. So even doubling our current rate of 1% to 2%, is that enough to help sustain the community? And those are questions that I think I don't know the answer to, but are definitely ones that need to be posed. Having said that, I think it's still an admirable vision. How do we support it? How do we get it moving forward? To put it into perspective, the, the municipal taxes that will come from the Benga Rivers uh, Grassy Mountain Project opening up to the Crow's Nest Pass would be the equivalent of building nine more Kanata hotels. And so to represent the magnitude of what this project means to the community in a tax sense, which is a measurable quantity, we would have to construct nine more Kanata hotels and keep them full and busy in the next 20 years, 25 years, to, well, basically in the next four years, to meet the same kind of tax revenue that would come from the proposed project. So there's part of the economic case. It's not the whole picture though, right? Tourism economy comes with a uh, few other hurdles. Uh, generally speaking, and this is where we get into the social values and the social context. Uh, tourism, while it can provide a lot of jobs, they're often not the same quality of jobs that come with industry. Uh, they're not as well paying, they often don't include benefits, and quite often for families living in a tourist community, property values start to go up, and without the high paying jobs, they may be forced out. And we see that. We can look at examples in Canmore and elsewhere where communities that have developed into more tourism towns, uh, the local population ends up having to be displaced. And that's not necessarily a view or value that many in the community support. So now we're starting to move into some of the social impacts of different visions. The key there is where the project can help support that is by diversifying the economy, still offering some of those high paying jobs and allowing many of the families in the community who have lived and worked in the coal industry to still remain and, and keep their families uh, there, work close to home and, and benefit from having good jobs where uh, they, they're not forced to move and relocate. So, how will the Grassy Mountain Project impact the Crow's Nest Pass economy? <clears throat> Obviously, there's a number of factors that were considered in the economic analysis. Employment effects, population effects, housing effects, social infrastructure, uh, income effects, and then, of course, taxes and royalties. Now, I talked a little bit about the taxes already. Employment. Grassy Mountain Project will employ 395 direct full-time positions once it's in operation. During the 18-month to two-year construction phase that uh, will begin subsequent to any regulatory decision, so late 2017, up until first coal around 2019, 
Uh, we expect to employ about 800 different trades over that period, many of which this is just sort of a distribution over that time period of when those trades uh, will be coming on stream, but it's anywhere up to about 180 people uh, could be employed at any one time. And now we start to think about options, about how do we support, say, a vision of tourism and recreation. Many approaches to resource development have been, okay, we're going to build a construction camp, it's going to be a temporary camp, we're going to house the workers, they're going to come in and out, and then we're going to get rid of the camp when we're done. That's an expensive thing, Re buying a camp, renting a camp, running it, and so on. Maybe, rather than those options, we look at how we can invest into the local infrastructure, hotels, motels, so that they have added income over that period that allows them to, say, upgrade, expand, add additional capacity that helps support some of the other things. So this is where we're starting to think, how do we create shared value, work with the community, understand their issues and their, their problems, how we can work together to find solutions. But that requires a lot of discussion and dialogue. But that's part of what we're trying to achieve. A little bit about the demographics, because that's a big factor, especially when you consider where you can go with municipal taxes. Crow's Nest Pass is, has a rather aged demographic. It's on average 10 years older than any other community in Alberta. Um, a lot of people have gone there to retire or have retired. Many are on fixed incomes and uh, are facing a real struggle right now with increased municipal taxes and, and just the cost of living that's happened can make it very expensive uh, to sustain and, and maintain a lot of the infrastructure that needs upgrading and so on. There's not many options for the community to get to, to uh, fulfill some of the issues that it's facing. Also in terms of the jobs, so we talked about how the project would employ about 395 people directly. Uh, the Grassy Mountain project is going to create approximately 1,050 jobs when you consider some of the indirect jobs or jobs that aren't directly at the site. Uh, engineers, consultants, suppliers, contractors uh, in other communities, you know, say, you know, in Sparwood or whatever, um, Calgary, Vancouver, overseas. So there's quite a, quite a sort of a chain reaction that happens. And we talk about, you know, a little bit, of, I, I mentioned what's been happening based on the, the latest Stats Canada results. The, the current population in the past has been declining for some time. And this sort of shows that while we're not going to completely reverse that, um, at least while we're there and in operation, we kind of stem the tide and we'll bring an influx of new people into the community, primarily younger uh, families, uh, who can help support many of the social and, and economic uh, infrastructure that's there now. So influx of new families, they want certain things, shopping, restaurants, kids, volunteer workforce, etc. So there's quite a, an indirect effect that comes with stimulating some economic growth. Housing effects. Uh, with the influx of new uh, employees into the pro uh, to support the project, we estimate about 165 houses are going to be required by 2021. The current housing situation in the past, there's a, a fair bit of housing, but it somehow doesn't match um, what the need is going to be. Many of the houses are in disrepair, uh, need to be need some major upgrades. There are uh, new development areas being constructed 
uh, both in the past and in surrounding communities. So there is, you know, a lot of potential to, to meet this demand and to stimulate some of the local economy in the same time. Social infrastructure requirements. Um, based on our analysis of uh, the current infrastructure, both in the past and in the adjacent communities of, of Sparwood, um, between those two communities, this is sort of what we think to support the 610 uh, people, employees and their families moving into the area. This is sort of what the impact might be in terms of social, so sort of that trickle down that starts to happen. In terms of spending, during the construction phase, Benga expects to spend about $4 million um, in the region, primarily in local contractors, trades, supplies, hotels, accommodations, that sort of thing. Um, during operations, we expect that number to increase to about $25 million. A lot of that is going to be through wages for the employees, uh, contractors, and other goods and services uh, in support of operations. Taxes and royalties. Now, I alluded already to the fact that uh, the project sits in two municipalities. The mine itself is situated in Ranchland 66, the MD of Ranchland 66, just to the north. The rail loadout um, is within the uh, community of Crow's Nest Pass, municipal district, uh, municipality of Crow's Nest Pass. The expected municipal revenue revenue to Crow's Nest Pass is about 465 dollars annually uh, based on current mill rates and sort of today's dollar that's the projection um, and I Greg correct me if I'm wrong I think it's just shy of a, a million dollars is the expected tax revenue for the mine itself I think 900 and something thousand to to the MD of ranch lands so that's municipal uh, revenues that would come in now of course one of the situations we face is that where the mine is situated, many of the social and economic impacts are going to be felt within the past itself. And so we've been working very closely with both uh, councils uh, and both municipalities uh, to try and discuss those issues and see what kind of options we have to, to try and balance those impacts uh, between the communities. Uh, the project's expected to pay around $195 million net NPV in royalties. Now, those numbers uh, change and could change again depending on the current royalty review that's undergoing with the province. Um, Benga's expected to pay about $140 million in income taxes to the provincial government over the life of the project and about $210 million uh, to the federal government in terms of federal taxes. These, again, don't include income tax from employees and so on. So I know I'm getting close to the end here. So the, the last piece I wanted to sort of give you uh, before we break for lunch and then questions is give you a little bit of background about the project itself. One is the Grassy Mountain Coal Project is not a thermal coal. We're not using this to generate energy. So any questions about energy and Thermal power plants, yeah, no, that's not me. This is a hard metallurgical coal, uh, hard coking coal used for steel making process. The mine permit boundary, which is on this outlined in blue, is sort of just sort of an artificial boundary for evaluation purposes so we can um, 
get an idea of where impacts are just to put a boundary around, okay, everything's sort of within this box. The footprint boundary, though, is a subset of that. The actual footprint of the project is about 1,582 hectares, so just over 3,000, 3,500 acres. Uh, about 50% of that is on private land, and more than 20% is existing disturbance. Uh, that probably about 20-25% is existing disturbance legacy from the previous mining activities. The produ uh, production is about 88 million tons of metallurgical high-quality uh, coking coal for destined for overseas steel manufacturing market. Uh, those markets are still being determined, but we've had very positive feedback from a number of interested uh, manufacturers, both in South America and in Asia. Um, and so that's the situation there. We estimate about 4 million tons per year over a period of up to 25 years. It may be a little bit shorter. It depends on some of the final uh, modeling results and estimates of, of coal reserves. There's no tailings ponds. All of the uh, material from the mine, the waste material, is going to go back into the pit, and we're going to use a saturated backfill, and it's part of our strategy for managing issues like selenium and water. Uh, there will be two rock tailings uh, piles, one in the north and one in the south, and uh, water management systems around those to capture any water runoff to, again, manage issues like selenium put that water back into our, our uh, saturated backfills for treatment. Um, any water coming through the, the mine design was designed with water management, uh, the pit design was, was made with water management in mind so that the water flows through the pits, comes to a containment pond, and before it can be released it has to be tested and meet all quali quality standards. And uh, these are some of the lessons we've learned in watching what's been happening in Elkford. And uh, one of the things we did right from the get-go was in mining, in designing our, our pits, not to do as they've done in Elkford where they piled them in the valleys. And you have creeks running right through the rock and so you have selenium running right out into the main streams, right? So we're learning and we're, we're improving. There hasn't been a modern coal mine built here in 30 years. So we're really starting to, to move things forward. The proposed rail loop is right here adjacent to Highway 3 along the uh, lower nine holes of the existing golf course and as part of our uh, project we're, we're working with the uh, Golf and Country Club to develop uh, a new set of nine holes a little further up the valley here uh, which they're quite excited about. Um, it'll be substantially improve the, the look and, and play of the course and the loadout facility itself uh, the coal, there's no, there's no stockpiles, so anybody who's remembering the old days, and I can remember even, um, of piles sitting by the railway. We've, we've got a very different situation here. From the mine processing facilities here, covered conveyor brings the coal down to a loadout facility where it's loaded into a train and then shipped off to Vancouver, West Shore Terminals, uh, to be transported to the overseas market. We estimate about 4.8 trains per week, and I think it's 250 trains a year, uh, is the expected increase in volume in, in train traffic. And uh, those are sort of the highlights or high points of the project. And of course, uh, as with any project, 
the offside, I guess the other side of the coin that we're evaluating is of course the environmental impacts. And that I'm sure will be a big topic uh, for discussion this afternoon. But as part of our EIA, as I said, we've done a lot of uh, work in evaluating the potential impacts and mitigating any impacts associated with the project. And we believe that all of the environmental issues that we face are manageable. And, uh, and that, you know, when we evaluate the trade-offs uh, for the project, that uh, we think that this is gonna be a really successful project and, and enhance the value um, of the Crow's Nest Pass and make it a, a better place. All right, thank you everybody. I think we're gonna take a break here and enjoy our lunch and I'll be back for any questions. <laughs>